The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And I am delighted today to welcome Eliza Greenman. She is Biodiversity Director for the Greenhorns, which is a non-traditional grassroots nonprofit organization made up of young farmers and a diversity of collaborators. Eliza hails from the Tidewater region of Virginia. She graduated from Sewanee, the University of the South, with a B.S. in forestry and later completed Mofka's Apprenticeship and Journey Persons Program to further her education in heirloom apple orcharding. Mofka stands for the Maine Organic Farmers and Gardeners Association. Today, she's an organic orchardist, fruit explorer, nurserywoman, ruralist, storyteller, advocate for the preservation of ancient and rare genetics, and again, as I said, she's the Director of Biodiversity for the Greenhorns. I wanted to speak with Eliza today because she experienced something that I think we all need to be aware of. She attended a Future Farmers of America meeting in Kentucky, and I want her to tell us both about her work with the Greenhorns and her orchard work, as well as her experience in Kentucky. So, Eliza, welcome. Thank you. It's great to be here. I want to ask you first how you became involved in the nurturing of apple trees for the production of cider. Well, apple trees found me in a way. I was a forester in a past life and got into food politics wanting to be self-sufficient, knowing what my food ate sort of person and One day, a friend of mine asked me if I knew how to prune an apple tree, and I didn't, so I found somebody who did, and once he taught me how, it was as if everything in the world made sense to me. My purpose and passions were born that day, and I've gone gung-ho ever since. The reason why I stick with heirlooms is because there are 7,000 different kinds of named varieties of apples in the United States that we know of today, and the flavors range from cinnamon and cherry to mandarin orange and even fried chicken. So it's a wild frontier for me to work with heirloom apples, and also I'm finding that they have greater disease resistances than a lot of these usual grocery store varieties that we see. And so I sort of set down this path of heirloom apple orcharding, and then the cider industry hit. And all of a sudden, there's a real interest in heirloom apples because these grocery store apples do not make good hard cider. And so all of a sudden, that became my profession, is a way to make heirloom apples profitable was through hard cider. And I've been working with that ever since. Did you say there are 7,000 different varieties of apples in the United States? Oh, yes, and there could be many more than that. It's just the named varieties. So cause basically apples don't grow true from seed. So oh. whenever you plant an apple from seed, say it's from a red delicious apple, what you're going to get is something that's very different from a red delicious. And it might be 
purple with green stripes and tastes like strawberries. Wow. And um, so if you do get that, then you can name it, and all of a sudden that's a new variety. Well, this is amazing to me because I think most of us who are not living on a farm and not familiar with the art and craft of orcharding are pretty much limited to maybe, let's say, eight varieties. I'm just trying to count how many apples I may have been exposed to in my sheltered life. And in your bio, I read that you currently have a collection of 650 apple varieties with plans to design and plant a commercial-scale fruit and nut forest using a diversity of apple genetics and native Appalachian species. Yes, that is correct. And why I'm into this, why I'm into creating this sort of apple forest with Appalachian species is because I've been to Central Asia and seen the wild apple forests there, specifically in Kyrgyzstan. And so there's wild apple and walnut forests. And I went to just study how they're growing in the wild, you know, what these forests look like, what they're comprised of with every intention of mimicking these forests back in the United States using native species. And so, yeah, I've got 650 varieties. A lot of people think I'm crazy, but there are some people in the United States who have many more than that. Uh, Nick Botner, for example, has a collection of 4,000 apple varieties over in Yonkala, Oregon. Wow. Well, you know, as a dietitian, when I hear you speak about all these varieties, I secretly think, wow, there must be all of these different varieties of nutrients and nutrient blends to keep us well and healthy. And when we narrow the diversity of our foods, we narrow our exposure to all of these health-protecting nutrients and other compounds that protect our cells from chronic disease. So we are working together in the name of public health and resiliency, and I'm really grateful for what you're doing. Oh, thank you. And just to comment on that quickly, I know of there are apples that are red inside, red-fleshed apples, and those are thought to have higher antioxidant values. There are also, like I think, the Calville Blanc apple, off the top of my head, has a higher vitamin C content than an orange. So, wow. Yeah, it, we've only sort of scraped the surface of nutrition when it comes to these apple varieties. Absolutely. Well, you are the owner slash operator of Legacy Fruit Trees in the Blue Ridge Mountains of southwestern Virginia, and you are also going to be continuing that operation, but now you're also going to be moving to New York to be closer to the Greenhorns. Tell me a little bit more about the Greenhorns. Sure. The Greenhorns are a nonprofit young farmer advocacy organization. And we have got our hands in everything. But what we specialize in is the media aspects. We have a blog. We have a radio show. We produce movies. We produce books, all to sort of instigate this young farmer community and and just reach out there and say, hey, you want to know about cooperative farming? We wrote a book on it. So here, you know, check it out. We also have projects that vary from the main sale freight is a project right now that's working on using sale freight as a means of delivering produce from point A to point B to increase the value of farmer goods. And we're part of the Agrarian Trust, which is sort of a land trust that puts agricultural land into a commons bank and then finding the right farmer for that site 
based on what the site reveals is the best farming potential. Mm-hmm. And boy, I mean, also we put out a new farmer's almanac every other year. So 2015 is our year for this, where we it's about a 200-page book, which is sort of the the new agrarian take on the farmer's almanac. And we've got essays from young farmers and essays from old farmers and pieces about the Grange and all sorts of things, which I'd like for everybody to check out if they can. And would they find that by going to the Greenhorns online? Is there a website that you'd like to give us for that? Sure. You can go to thegreenhorns.net. We've got a store there. And thegreenhorns.net is a way to find the new Young Farmers Almanac. Wonderful. And I might add that that's also how I found you. Actually, how I found you was through a friend of a friend, and they forwarded me a blog post that you had written for the Greenhorns about your recent trip to the Future Farmers of America conference. And I found it to be one of the best written pieces, well-cited, well-researched, a chilling read, actually, and I wonder if you can just tell me a little bit about how and why you went to the Future Farmers of America meeting. Sure. I originally pitched this project to Severn at the Greenhorns about checking in with the SFA because I had a worker, a high schooler, who would come and help me with my tree business from time to time, and I was realizing the more I worked with him, the less he knew about the real basics, you know, how to save a seed, how to make compost, soil life, and the fact that it's not dirt, it's not dead, and the importance in that. And so that sort of got me thinking, wow, I'm hearing all of this from this 14-year-old, and I'm sure that he's just a small piece of the puzzle. I'd really like to go to the SSA convention and, and see if my theories are sort of playing out. And so I did. We The... National FFA convention held in Louisville back in October had 60,000 students attend from all rural, I mean, most of them from rural lifestyles. They come from farming families and some also from cities. But it was really an eye-opening trip, Mm -hmm. (laughs) to say the least. Well, you mentioned that you try to grow your fruit organically, and let me thank you for that. But you mentioned that the young man who had been working for you didn't know anything really about organic production systems. And I'm wondering if if at the Future Farmers of America conference, if you saw any promotion of organic farming. The only promotion of organic farming that we saw was a booth held by Organic Valley. And actually, we were talking to those folks over at Organic Valley who decided to have spend the money, more money on a, on a workshop space this year rather than on an actual booth, you know, to make their booth presence larger. And they said that this year they had a record low attendance. Wow. Usually it's a room, in past years it's been, you know, a room packed with 200 kids. This year I think they maybe had 50. Wow. And I just received today a notice from the Georgia Organics Association. 
and they are trying to get a hundred new organic farmers started because they recognize that consumer demand for organics is outpacing the supply. And I think you and I would both agree that it's dangerous to depend on other countries for our food. And so this idea of bringing more young farmers to the table and in the fields who are producing organic food to meet this demand is really important. But I actually, in your blog, saw links to the different speakers, the different keynote speakers. And I was very disturbed, Eliza, by what I saw. Because what I saw was a promotion of everything that isn't organic. This idea that we need these genetic engineered crops that are really engineered to withstand herbicide sprays. That we need these kinds of crops to feed these billions of people that are going to populate the world. So help me understand what you saw there with regard to that. Right. So I guess we'll start with Donnie Smith, who is currently the CEO of Tyson Foods. I'll talk about his speech, which was a keynote speech, and it was attended by, I don't know, maybe 10,000 students, maybe more. It's hard to say. It was in an arena. And he really hammered home for these kids to take back the story of agriculture. And he set all of this up, this whole line, take back the story of agriculture. He set this up by having the kids take out their cell phones and get on Twitter and start tweeting the hashtag MyAgStory to talk about what they're farming and to talk about how their way of farming is not bad, you know, how their way of farming is innovation, you know, it's it's uh it's gonna feed it's gonna feed the nine billion people by twenty fifty. And through that take back the story of agriculture, he's talking about taking it back from those who are ignorant or who he sees as being ignorant in this sort of food chain. He mentioned bloggers living in their mothers' basements, which got a chuckle out of the crowd. You know, taking back the story of agriculture from that guy who's blogging, who knows that nothing guy blogging out of his mom's basement. And then he went along to say, you know, these people, including this guy who's blogging in a basement and presumably like people like the Greenhorns and people like you and me, these people are hijacking your story and you've got to take it back. So that's really one of the scariest things I witnessed when I was in this keynote address. It was the energy surrounding these kids and how they were just fully charged. You know, they they were fully charged to take it back. Like, they have been served an injustice. Farming is being given a bad rap by people like us, and they need to do something about it. And this carried through in one-on-one talks I would have with the kids, where they would come and stop by and talk to us, about everything, <laughs> just about. But, you know, they would say things like, yeah, I go to the farmer's market and, you know, I try to talk to all the consumers about what we're growing and how it's safe, you know, how we use genetically modified corn seed and how it's safe and Roundup safe and, you know, moderation in all things when it comes to using pesticides and herbicides. And, you know, they they really do, they're really being this curriculum 
and without any other outside knowledge, they, they're believing it. You know, they, they truly believe this, which is the scariest thing of all, I think. Yeah. Listeners, if you're just joining us, we are speaking with Eliza Greenman. She is the Biodiversity Director for the Greenhorns, and she is also the owner-operator of Legacy Fruit Trees in Virginia. Eliza, you mentioned curriculum, and I just wanted to say that I've been paying close attention to the kind of curriculum that children get in school. And I was disheartened to see a McGraw-Hill piece of science curriculum that was promoting GMOs for all of the positives, all the positives were listed, but none of the troubling negatives. So I think that when these students go to schools, whenever we have the privatization of our educational system rather than good public funding, this is what we see. And you provided a source of funding for the FFA. When I said that you did great research and had great citations, this is an example of that. So you have a beautiful chart showing the source of funding for the National FFA program. And 89% of those funds come from corporations. And they're not organic companies that are funding them. There are Monsanto, Cargill, Dow, Syngenta, Elanco, and these are companies that produce pharmaceuticals for animals, biotechnology, pesticides and herbicides. And so I'm curious to know how we, how can we reach these kids and help them understand how they're being led to a false understanding of truly sustainable and resilient agriculture? Well, like I said earlier, you know, these kids, I would say the majority of these kids in the FSA, by the way, there are 610,000 students in the FSA right now, and they are coming from very rural, isolated places, and that's, that's sort of the pool. For, for a conference like this is that they can meet other like-minded people like them. And so I think the way to go for trying to help bring about awareness, you know, for, for our, I guess, a more resilient way of farming, one that improves the land while also harvesting a crop, is to reach out and try and get a hold of these kids, you know, Try and be a guest speaker at these FFA, in these FFA classrooms. You know, offer guided tours. Just, you know, know your neighbor. Get, if your neighbor kid is in the FFA, grab him and, and see if he can come over and spend the time on talking. Because to me, what it seems like is the biggest factor working against them right now is isolation. And mm-hmm. they're sort of, it's, they're just being fed this stream of education and curriculum from big ag that's that's all the teachers know and you know it's in these isolated often conventional farming communities and these kids have no other outlets so to me it would i really saw the importance of of just trying to widen these kids horizons so that they can see you know oh well they can ask all the questions they want and they can even participate, but at the end of the day, they'll see that, you know, this system works too. 
and you can produce nearly as much as, as much food on these systems, specialty crops, I should say, on these systems than you can, you know, than in, as compared to a conventional system. So that to me is my, for right now, sort of nugget of solution is to get in there and urge everybody to get in there and, and try and, and try and show these kids a new world. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that the Greenhorns are doing a tremendous job in showing young farmers and youth who want to get into farming a safer and better way, and especially because you are at your peak childbearing years. So this would be the time when you wouldn't want to be exposed to the herbicides that are associated with all of these genetically engineered crops. And I think what I hear so often from these groups, and believe me, they come to dietetic association meetings too, is that, yes, these foods are safe, these crops are safe, the herbicides are safe, and yet we really don't have data showing that. But we do know that the system that you're doing is safe. Mm-hmm. Exactly. I mean, everything I try to do is I try to import as little as possible onto the farm. You know, we're just we're really trying to work with nature and and sort of have a natural innovation rather than a, a synthetic laboratory-based innovation. And that's really, that's really the difference. And with my profession of growing apples, you know, I'm trying to select the right tree, the right genetics for the site so that I'm more able to produce an organic apple with as little inputs as possible. And I think from the perspective of a lot of these kids, they've only been introduced to an input-based, input-output-based system where the seeds that they they can't even save the seed to try and adapt for the site because that's illegal. Right. And and so it's really it's a, quite the divide that that we're in. Yeah. As a young orchardist and a member of the Greenhorns, what would you like our listeners to know? I would like the listeners to know that we're doing some really great work, but. It's a grassroots effort, and as is, you know, awareness and consume, just spreading the word to consumers about what we're doing and why it's important, and just, I guess, connecting. You know, I would, I would like your listeners to know that connect, spending just a minute a day trying to connect more people to this conversation is so valuable because... It is. It boils down at the end of the day to being, to just being more aware and knowing what's in your landscape and knowing what's on your plate. From an orchardist perspective, just you know, I want people to know what apple trees are growing on their landscape because maybe one of those apple trees is disease resistant, and that could be the next big apple, you know, next big healthy apple. And the same thing goes for connecting people to their plates and to their food sources because, all you know, it all feeds into this great system of health that, that we're always trying to improve on. Mm-hmm. I think, too, it's important for, as an educator of consumers myself, I think it's important for us to move away from this idea that all fruit or vegetables has to appear to be perfect 
And so sometimes I'll be at the farmer's market and somebody will apologize for, you know, they'll say, well, there, there are a couple of bug, bug marks on there. And I say, no, that's my guarantee that there isn't a neurotoxin on that fruit. So changing the way we think about how food even appears would be a step in the right direction. Would you agree? Oh, absolutely. And I'm, I'm on the ugly fruit and vegetable bandwagon 100%. I actually, this year, started a small public awareness campaign on Twitter and on Facebook called uh, Hashtag Eat Ugly Apples, where I would take pictures of all the apples that were currently being harvested and draw on these pictures to highlight what were purely cosmetic blemishes. You know, they weren't worms in your apples. They're not going to affect the taste, but they're given the, the world's worst names, like apple scab and fly speck and sooty blotch. And so just educating people to know that, hey, you know, actually this presence of fungus on this apple, this, this fly speck, which isn't caused from flies, it's a fungus, is, you know, it actually means that your apples haven't been sprayed with fungicide. Because yeah. we... People, you know, it's amazing how much fungicide, organic and inorganic, goes on into apple orchards every year for purely cosmetic blemishes. Yeah. Um, and that's a, that's a huge hurdle. You know, that'll lower the cost. That'll help lower the cost of apples. That'll increase the health of the farmer. It'll increase the health of the consumer. But to me, it's a win-win. We just kind of have to change change our perspective on it a little bit. Mm-hmm. And I think, too, a better understanding of how sometimes the nutritional quality of our fruit and vegetables can be improved when the fruit or vegetable has to fight against a pest. And so showing that it's okay, those marks aren't degrading the fruit, you might actually end up with a better product in the end. That's right. And I'll just add one little bit to that is um, I did a little bit of worked this fall on the effects of a uh, cosmetic fungus called apple scab on hard cider. And what I found was that apple scab increases the sugar content of the apples, which effectively gives you more alcohol. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Because once you ferment, sugar turns into alcohol. And, you know, that's a... That's a really great thing. That's what we're going for in the cider industry is to get more alcohol out of those apples. And lo and behold, perhaps these blemishes are the way forward for that. Well, Eliza, unfortunately our time is up, but I want to thank you very much for this incredible blog, which enabled me to find you and promote the work that you're doing. Listeners, we've been speaking with Eliza Greenman. She's the owner-operator of Legacy Fruit Trees in Virginia. She is soon to relocate to New York State, where she will also be taking care of an orchard and working part-time for greenhorns. And I want to also promote the greenhorns. They are a non-traditional, grassroots, non-profit organization made up of young farmers and a diversity of collaborators. Please go online. Again, that website is thegreenhorns.net. We'll provide that link as well as a link to Eliza's excellent blog post. It is time for us to tell the true story of agriculture, and people like Eliza are going to help us do that. 
In closing, I want to remind our listeners that Food Sleuth Radio is produced at KOPN Studios by Dan Hemmelgarn in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Eliza, thank you so much for being my guest and for your terrific written as well as orchard work. Yes, thank you for having me.